These days you have to turn the power on before you can start to speak. We're all electrified and all wired up. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be back again. I've thoroughly enjoyed the other times that I've been here. Um, if you don't remember me, well, that's okay. Most people feel like that about my sermons and never remember them. But no, it's great. It's great for me to be back here and uh, giving Nick a wee breakdown as he celebrates his mother's 65th birthday. When Nick asked me uh, to preach, um, he said he's on a series on the minor prophets and I could fit in with that if I wanted or do my own thing. So immediately I thought of Jonah and said, have you done Jonah yet? And he said, no, not done Jonah. I said, great, I'll do Jonah. My favorite minor prophet. We all know about Jonah, don't we? No? Yes. You can speak, by the way. That's perfectly permissible. So what do we know? What do you know about Jonah? You shout out. Swallowed by a fish. Well done, a fish, not a whale. Yes, very good. It was never a whale, no matter what they told me in Sunday school 60 years ago. It was a big fish. Yes, why? Why is he swallowed by a fish? He disobeyed God, that's right. He tried to run away from God. And out of this comes a message which is totally wrong. It's a message that we teach our children. It's a message of that silly wee song. Now listen to my tale of Jonah and the whale. If you know it, do your best to forget it. (laughs) But the message that we give is... Jonah disobeyed God, so if God tells you to do something, do it and don't disobey. There is nothing wrong with that message except it is not the message of the book of Jonah. So we are going to look at it. Um, If I'm speaking for too long, in fact, I'd better take my phone out and make sure that I, I keep an eye on the time. Okay, that's 12 o'clock. Um, Anybody got their dinner ready for before two (laughs) o'clock? Because there's so much in this. It's a fantastic story. And it's one that we really should come to to grips with because it speaks also to our time right here and now. It's probably spoken to every time ever since Jonah wrote the story itself. So we're going to to have a look at it and... um, just look into it and see what it is really saying. Now, we need to know a bit about Jonah and a bit about the book. So the obvious questions are, who wrote it? Well, the simple answer is that there is absolutely no reason to doubt that Jonah wrote it himself. Second question, however, is why did Jonah write it? Because if you think about that, it's, it's a bit strange. You know, if Nick wrote a story about his time here I'm in, in, as, as a minister here I'm, and started to say all the things that went wrong and, and all the mistakes that he had made you'd read it saying why has he written this? This is, this is just doing himself down you would say it's a bit, a bit silly and so it's a bit strange that Jonah wrote this story because it seems to say that Jonah was pathetic that he was disobedient, that he could hear God, but he ran away. 
And then he gets swallowed by a whale and, and so on and so forth. And even at the end, the chapter we didn't read at the end, he goes into a blue funk because God actually does what he said he's going to do. And Jonah didn't want that. So he goes into a bad mood. He's not much of a prophet, is he? And yet the strange thing is that he is. He's a great prophet. And even Jesus quotes him when he was preaching so why did he write it? He criticizes himself, he gives himself a bad press. But as we look at it, maybe it's not as bad as we might think at first. So who was Jonah anyway? What else can we learn about him? What can we know? Well, he was a prophet, and he was a prophet in Israel, and he was a prophet at the time of a king called Jeroboam the second, you know, a bit like the American golfers, so-and-so the third. Um, well, he was the second. Uh, and Jeroboam wasn't his father, but either his grandfather or his great-grandfather. I never, I never worked it out. But anyway, he was Jeroboam the second. So who was he? Well, he's the king of Israel and Samaria. Now, if you just imagine your map of, uh, of, of the Holy Land as it is now, at this time, there were two kingdoms. They'd fallen out. There was a North Kingdom, a South Kingdom, a bit like Scotland and England. And they didn't speak to each other, a bit like Scotland and England. And no, do we speak to each other? Never mind. <clears throat> anyway, he was in the Northern Kingdom of Israel and he had been successful. He had conquered everything to that side, Samaria, Damascus, he had won the battles over that and he was now living in a time of peace. So this is Jeroboam. To put him in, in a time scale, he reigned for 41 years in the 8th century BC. Now to go any further, we have to go back to scripture again and we're going to just look at a few verses. If you're looking at your Bible You'll find it in Second Kings chapter 14. See, we, sh- we shouldn't just isolate the book of Jonah and say that's all there is. We can look back and find out a bit more about what was happening then. So it's Second Kings 14, and hopefully it's going to come up on the screen as well. But if not, well, listen. Chapter 14, Second Kings 14 and verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom. So that's setting it in time. This was when Amaziah was king down there. Joash, Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he'd caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hephar. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. So that's the background. 
And we can begin to get a picture of Israel back then. We can piece a lot more stuff together from archaeology and from other things. And we find that this is a time of relative peace and prosperity. Every now and again in that whole area of the world, they stopped fighting each other. And it's still the same actually in Israel. Um, Tourism goes up when they stop fighting each other. And when they start fighting again, tourism drops back down. So this is a time of relative peace and prosperity. Israel was powerful. They had defeated the Syrians and made peace with the Persians. And this is always good for trading. It's believed that the kind of trading that Jeroboam would be involved in was the trading of olive oil, naturally, wine, and horses to both Egypt and Assyria. So Egypt down south and Assyria up in the northeast. So this is all great. And because of that the whole region, Israel and Samaria, became very wealthy, very rich. And Jeroboam, of course, being the king, became exceedingly wealthy. He built luxurious palaces. But, isn't this a common theme? He didn't share the wealth with the people. So the people were poor and and oppressed and exploited. And that's what gives rise to these minor prophets and the word of God that he wanted to speak to his people in Israel and particularly to their kings. Jehovah, God, was still worshipped, but he was also being worshipped through images of golden calves and in altars dedicated to foreign gods. In other words, there was compromise. You know, the the golden calves are ridiculous, isn't it? Do these people never learn? They all know the story of Moses, you know, do they never learn? You don't worship God through a golden calf? It's not like that. So worship was a compromise with the false gods of the land that they'd conquered, and even the form that worship took was unsavory. Leave that to your imagination, but it was typical of of worship in the likes of of Egypt and and other countries at that time. So this is what the land looks like when Jonah is a prophet. Unlike the other prophets at the time, Hosea, Amos, Joel, Jonah didn't rant and rave and proclaim what was going to happen and say to the people how angry God was with them. He doesn't seem to be like that. Instead, it seems that Jonah was very close to Jeroboam. Jonah had predicted, Jeroboam came to Jonah and said, I'm going to fight this battle. What do you think? What does God think? You pray, you tell me. And evidently, Jonah had made some good predictions. So he was very close to Jeroboam. He probably lived in the palace, and he undoubtedly was wealthy. So he's unlike the other prophets in that way. But we begin to get a picture of this man. It is to this man, to Jonah, that God gives the task of bringing his word of salvation to the Ninevites. I love how, uh, how often it happens that the music that is chosen fits so well uh, 
with the sermon, even though we never, we never got together over that at all. But that last, that last song, the the about God's word, God's name is powerful. Well, that's what happens here. God's name is powerful, and we see this unfolding. So Jonah hears God's voice and recognizes God's command, and the story begins. Of course, the first thing he does is to flee. Why does he flee? Because Jonah doesn't like this command. Jonah maybe liked the commands to tell Jeroboam whether he was going to win or not, but this command, he didn't like this at all. Why? Because the Ninevites were away over there. He didn't want to go away over there. The Ninevites were the enemy. They were the Assyrians. They had come and fought with the Israelites many, many times. Who would want to go to them? Who would want to save that lot over there? Certainly not Jonah. So he tries to escape. He's not so much trying to escape from the command that God has given him from the, from the job. He's trying to escape from God altogether. And yet, King David in the Psalms had written earlier, if I try to flee from God, where can I go? Can I go to the east or the west, to the height or the depth? No, wherever I am, God will be there. So Jonah's being a bit foolish, and he's portraying himself to these readers in Jeroboam's time as being a bit foolish. He flees, quite understandable. I'm sure his readers would have understood this as well. Yes, absolutely, Jonah. You're quite right to try and get out of this one. It's like a wealthy church in the suburbs suburbs of some big city being told, I want you to pack up and start again down in that poor area where there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of violence and you won't particularly feel safe when you come out of your church, but that's where I want you. And you can imagine the wealthy church in the suburbs saying, no God, I don't think so. Well, that's this kind of situation. But you have to understand how real God is to Jonah. Jonah is absolutely convinced of what God wants. Jonah really does hear God. And there's no doubting what he's hearing. Anyway, he tries to go to Tarshish. It's believed that that's somewhere on the coast of Spain. So he's going in the opposite direction, literally running away. God intervenes. And there is, of course, a big storm sent and there's trouble on board the ship. And Jonah knows that it is God right away. I love the fact that he sleeps through it. He really is quite a guy. But the sailors aren't sleeping through it. They're saying, what's happening here? You know, what's, what's this man brought to us? Because evidently they knew that he was running away from God. And so they turn to Jonah and say, come on, what's this waking up? Do something about this. Do something about this storm. And they asked Jonah to pray to his God And the name of God is so powerful that when they ask Jonah to pray, they all become God followers. They would be Christians if it was post-Jesus era. But they all become God followers. It's amazing. This is an amazing man. He just prays and these sailors are all converted. Fantastic. But the storm doesn't die down. And so these newfound believers do what 
they really don't want to do because they said to Jonah, what do we do now? And Jonah said, just throw me overboard. And they don't want to do that. They don't want to commit this murder, so they pray for forgiveness. But they throw Jonah overboard. And I think Jonah's, what Jonah's saying here is, I've got you this time, God. I'm going to drown, and that's that. I don't need to obey you. But that's it. It's over. No more missions that I don't fancy. And of course, what God is saying is that this is not the end. And so in chapter 2 that we didn't read, if your Bibles are are still open at Jonah, just have a quick glance at it. You'll see immediately that it's a prayer. The whole of the chapter is a prayer. Because Jonah, of course, as we know, is swallowed by a big fish and finds himself in the belly of the fish. And there, Jonah cries out in his distress. Well, I can imagine we might all cry out in our distress if we found ourselves in the belly of a fish. So Jonah starts to pray, and his prayer is really quite wonderful. But it shows once again that this man who's trying to flee from God actually knows that God can't be escaped, that God's there with him even in the belly of the fish. And so he cries out to the Lord out of his distress. Jonah has gone down. Life has got worse and worse for him. He went down to Tarshish. He went down into the bottom of the ship. He went down into the water and he's now right down. And I think this is part of the message to the people back home. That no matter how far down you've got, and it's a message for every one of us, for every person, no matter how far down you've got, God is still there. He doesn't desert you. He doesn't desert the the down and out on the street, the alcoholic, the drug addict. He doesn't desert the person who has deserted him, maybe grown up in church and then said, no God, I've had enough of this. I want to go my own way. He doesn't desert us. His faithful, his faithful love endures forever. And so it is with Jonah. In the belly of the whale, God is still there. And Jonah prays to him. And the prayer ends wonderfully with wonderful words that that we shall memorize. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Often when people have gone down and down and down in life, they look for deliverance everywhere else other than God. They go to self-help or, or they go to another religion. But deliverance belongs to the Lord. And the many people who have found that in their most down state will testify that that's where they found help. They found help with God. So Jonah's saying this to his people back home, deliverance belongs to the Lord. Deliverance does not belong to these foreign gods that you're now worshipping. Deliverance does not belong to compromise. And to saying, well, you know, you can believe that God and I'll believe this God and maybe we'll find a mixture. It does not belong there. Deliverance 
belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. So we're halfway through the story. Jonah has run from God. He's disobeyed God. But he discovers that he can't get away. What if Jonah was writing that to the church in Scotland? By which I mean all the people in Scotland who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What if Jonah was writing that to us today? Would we be thinking, yeah, maybe God's people today in our land have not been what they should be? That they've not been faithful to God? That they've compromised? It's supposed to be a good word, but it's not a good word when it comes to God. We don't compromise with God. But let's continue. The fish gets fed up with Jonah. It's probably too difficult to digest, and so he throws him up on the beach, on the shore. And the voice of God speaks once again, Arise, go to Nineveh. Well, there's nothing else to do. He's, he's on a, a foreign shore now, and so he walks towards the great city of Nineveh. The prophet has been rescued and the prophet can still hear God's voice. And that's part of why I say that this story doesn't really do Jonah down. Because as his first readers read it, they're saying, wow, yeah. He's still hearing God's voice despite all of this. And he's still doing what God wants. And I think Jonah wanted them to to think like that. So off he goes in the direction of Nineveh. Now let me just give you a picture of Nineveh back in that time. We, we, we get to know these names, you know, Jonah, Tarshish, Nineveh, from the story. But we seldom get to know, actually, where they were or what they were like. Well, Nineveh was a huge city. To place it geographically, half of Mosul, if you remember Mosul from the news, you heard enough about it, Half of Mosul is still called Nineveh today. That's where it was in that region. Uh, A large city. They reckon it was three miles by one and a half miles with an awful lot of people in it. So that's where it was. Sadly, you would also see in the news uh, the amount of relics and historical uh, renovation that ISIS simply destroyed. Well, that was Nineveh. At this time, at the time of Jonah, it was the largest city in the world. And it remained that for about 50 years. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was also in a time of peace under a king called Sennacherib. He laid out in the city uh, streets and squares, and he built a palace which was described as a palace without rival. It was lined with sculptures. He also built a wall around the city and it took evidently three days, well it took Jonah three days to cross the city. The city was of course pagan, as the Assyrians were, and the main god that they worshipped was Ishtar. So that's where Jonah is headed, the largest, wealthiest city in the world at that time. And that's who he had to speak to. 
to Jonah, Nineveh is an anathema. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want it. It's a natural enemy. If you could think of a country that had a constant enemy, well, the Ninevites are that to Jonah. So why on earth did God want him to go there? And sometimes I think we think like that. Why, why would God want us to go to places I, where people aren't interested, they don't want to know about him? Some years ago, some many years ago now, my wife Evelyn and I were youth workers in Dalmarnock in Glasgow. Lovely area in Glasgow. I taught in a school just up the road from it. And uh, through getting to know the minister, we became youth workers there. It's very interesting because there were no youth. It's an interesting job description. Could you be our youth workers? I'm sorry we have no youth. However, my pupils and ex-pupils heard that we had become youth workers. And so they came in numbers and uh, invaded the church What was interesting though, lots of interesting things happened, but one thing that was very interesting was that members of the Kirk Session didn't want them. Now here's God reaching out to all of these completely unchurched young people, many of them in gangs, most of them in trouble, and members of the Kirk Session didn't want them. What was their reason? We come to church to escape people like that. We've got to live with them. We don't want them in our church as well. Could I say that that is the exact opposite of what God wants? The exact opposite? I remember once talking to a man who was a youth worker in a, a brethren assembly. And the brethren had built a brand new hall. And they took him aside and said, we don't want you to continue with your youth work in our brand new hall. He said, oh really? Uh, he went on the offensive and he talked to the leaders of the church and said, if you don't want the youth work in here, you have no church. And they changed their minds and he continued with his youth work in the brand new hall. The brand new hall was irrelevant. The youth work was vital. So we have Nineveh then, with its goddess Ishtar. And Jonah goes there, he goes in. What's he got to do? Well, God's given him a message. His message is, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now there's a gap here. We know that that's the message, but all we know then is that the people started to listen and uh, the king as well and they were all changed, they're all converted. But how did that happen? Well I think this is how it happened. I think this crazy man Jonah came into Nineveh and he started shouting 40 days and you'll be overthrown, 40 days and you'll be overthrown. They started saying who is he? And I think somebody recognized him and said he's a prophet who gave Jeroboam victory. And they begin to say, oh dear. And they talk to their neighbors. That guy, Jonah, the prophet of Israel, very successful. He's saying 40 days and we'll be overthrown. And so the word goes round and the people get anxious and the king hears about it. And he listens. 
Because Jonah is coming in the name of the Lord. And that name is powerful. And that name changes things. And we as Christians have discovered that for 2,000 years. The name of the Lord is mighty. And so they repent. Jonah doesn't like it. In the chapter that we didn't read, chapter 4, he goes into a sulk. He sits out the 40 days, and I suspect that what he was doing was hoping that they would actually be overthrown and uh, that they wouldn't listen at all. But now he's got to come to terms with the fact that yes, yes, they did listen. 40 days, and they were not overthrown. 40 days, and they become believers in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then there's an interesting discussion between God and Jonah, where God says, right at the end, chapter 4, verse 11, Should I not pity these people? Should I not pity these people? Should I not pity these young people in Dalmarnock who are coming into a church? Should I not pity people who worship other gods and don't know me? Should my pity not be on them? The Lord pitied the people of Israel. We read back in that King's passage. The, Lord, the Lord's pity was on the people. He had said he would not destroy them. He would not overcome them. And now he's not destroyed the Ninevites. And the people have to take this message on board. Jonah, their prophet, went to Nineveh. And God had pity on the people of Nineveh. He will also have pity on them. But, but, they have to be obedient. Because uh, there's another message here, and it's so important. God will pity who he wants to pity. He is God. And if God wants to convert the whole of the Ninevites, He might also want to use them because his own people are not being faithful. His own people are compromising. His own people are not being what they should be. In their comfort and their prosperity, they'd moved away from God's decrees. They'd stopped doing what God wanted. In their comfort and prosperity, they'd neglected their duty to the poor. In their comfort and prosperity, they'd forgotten the reason that God called them to be his people, which was not for their comfort and prosperity, but so that they would be a voice to all the nations, and all the nations would know about the God who created the world, who was a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who took Moses and the people of Israel out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, took them into their land, the God who is faithful, the God who keeps his promises. And they weren't telling anyone. They weren't telling anyone. Because they'd started to compromise. They started to say, well, it doesn't really matter if we're worshipping false gods. Did the people listen? It's not all that important to us 
whether the people listened. They obviously didn't because eventually they are overrun and taken into exile. The question is, are we listening to the message of Jonah? In our land, what is the state of Christianity? Have we moved away from God's decrees? From his decree that there should be no other God before me? How many gods do we put before the one and only God? I have a friend who, given the choice of worshipping God or going to see rangers, will go and see rangers. I said, no, rangers not a God. Well, yes, it is. It's replacing God. God's decree to us is that we worship the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength and our neighbor as ourselves. That's his decree. Are we keeping that decree? Christians in Scotland, do we see that? Do we see churches reaching out? I love what you're doing here, by the way. I absolutely love it. And part of me is saying this message isn't for you, it's for a whole lot of other churches. But we can always do better. Are we keeping his decrees? I worship, as Nick did, that's where we met, in an Episcopal church now. That's the path that God has taken me in, in life. And uh, Evelyn and I are worshipping there. We're not members. I couldn't cope. Uh, church Scotland was enough. I couldn't cope with another denomination. So we're not members. But <clears throat> the Episcopal Church recently at its last synod passed by just one vote the redefinition of marriage. That marriage is no longer simply between a man and a woman but can be between two people of the same sex. I'm sorry but they've crossed a line. That can't be argued from the, the Bible. They are not being obedient to God's decrees. They are not being obedient to the word of God. And that will have a consequence. My minister in, in our church does not agree um, <clears throat> with that decision. And we'll see what happens but we can't do this. We can't simply play fast and loose with God and say, well, okay, we'll believe that because we like it, but we won't believe that because we don't like it. God's decrees are relatively simple. They're not difficult to follow. What about Jesus' decrees? That he came for the poor, for the naked, for the prisoners. And then later in Matthew 25, he separates people from the ones who have clothed the naked, fed the poor, visited the prisoners, declared the year of the Lord, the ones who have actually done that. And the other people have said, Ah, oh, but we called you Lord. You know, we gave you your place. Well, you don't give God his place if you're not doing what God wants you to do. So are we listening? Are we listening to the message of Jonah? 
Perhaps the reason why church numbers are declining all over Scotland is because we're not. We're not. Believe me, I've got a lot of experience of churches all over Scotland as part of my ministry in the Church of Scotland. And I'll tell you this now. Churches that are growing are churches that are reaching out. Not just with an evangelic message in words. That's great, but it's not enough. It's an evangelic message in how you care. How you feed people. I, I just loved what you were saying about what you're doing at Christmas. How you give bikes to children. That's the obedience. And the churches that are doing these kind of things are churches that are growing. Churches that are listening. God did lose patience with both the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom of Israel. And they were both overrun. And the people were exiled. And they had to go back to the beginning and start all over again. And God rescued them. As he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, he rescued them once again. Will we listen? We're not being given an injunction, you'll be pleased to know, to pack up and go. But simply to stay. To take the opportunities that God gives each one of us to express his love to the people that we meet, to share God with a word, to share him with a smile, to share him with an offer of help, to share him by saying to someone, can I pray with you? You know, that is so powerful. And we, we seem so reluctant to do it. I remember once three, three lads in, in Dunfermline, where I was minister, they came into an early morning prayer meeting that we ran and a couple of us took them to another room and said, look, this is a prayer meeting you've come into. And, oh, we didn't know that. They'd been up all night. And I said, so, it's a prayer meeting. Is there anything we can pray for, for you? And they each had something. And all of a sudden, they were dead serious, completely unchurched. All of a sudden, they were saying, yes, could you pray for this? Could you pray for that? And we laid our hands on them and prayed for them. I met one of them a couple of months later, and he said, thanks for that prayer. I think it was his eyesight that was a problem. He was fine. Terrific. God at work. He then asked me to pray uh, for his um, bet that he just placed to come up because he owed people a lot of money. So we had to have a wee talk about that. Share your faith. Let people know that you're a Christian that you believe in God and do it with confidence for people have been doing this for 2,000 years and have found that it works. So thank you, Jonah. Thank you for your story. Thank you for your message and thank you for your courage in sharing that story with your people and sharing it with us. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you that your message is eternal, that the, the message in Jonah, the challenge to the people of his time, is similarly a challenge to us. We do pray for your churches around this town and around this land. Help us to be faithful.
to all that you have asked us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.